What do you fear? What are you afraid of? What scares you? This past week, I came across a survey, a Gallup poll survey, that identified the top things that people are afraid of. I'd like to show you the list of the top things that people are afraid of. And as we kind of run through, I'm going to kind of go through the list of things that people are afraid of. And as we do, I'd like a little bit of participation. So when I identify one thing, if you are afraid of that thing, I'd like you to raise your hand. So let's start. Number one on that list is snakes. Who? Yeah, I figured a lot of people were scared of snakes. Snakes. The second thing, public speaking. Who's afraid of public? Want to come help me? Oh, no, I know. Number three, heights. Who's a, that is me. I am deathly afraid of heights. I come to here, and I am glad it is not. I'm, I'm nervous right now. <laughs> Being closed in a small space. Who's afraid of that? Yeah. Spiders. Who's afraid of spiders? Needles and getting shots. Oh, boy. Some of you got all these on your list. Uh, mice. Yeah, flying in an airplane. Andy. No, no more, though. He trusts God now. Uh, dogs. Dogs. Oh, yeah, if you're if you even afraid of dogs, I got you. Thunder and lightning? Thunder and lightning. Yeah, me too. Going to the doctor. My doctor's in here. I can't say I'm afraid of going to him. Uh, the dark. How about the dark? Who's afraid of the dark? Yes, this list of fears. We resonate with these fears, don't we? I think almost all of us in this room raised our hand to at least one of these fears. That's because these are, they're, they're fears. They're real fears. They're like the concrete, some concrete fears, and they're, and they're reasonable. Some of the fears are reasonable. Not all of our fears are unreasonable. Not all fear is bad. Like, look at, like, if I go to the zoo, I'm not going to jump in the tiger cage with the tiger to take a selfie. <laughs> Why? Because I'm afraid of the tiger. I want to stay alive. Some fears are, are reasonable. The problem is, is when our unreasonable fears our reasonable fears become unreasonable. When our fears grow to the point of overwhelming us and consuming us, that's when fear becomes a problem. I have another list of fears that I'd like to show you. A fear, list of fears that, that hit home for me and I think they'll probably hit home for you as well. Now you don't have to raise your hand to this list of fears, but I'd like you to ask yourself, do I fear these things? Do you fear losing your freedom? Do you fear the unknown? Do you fear pain, disappointment, misery, loneliness, ridicule, rejection? Do you fear death? Do you feel failure? All of us in this room have at least one of these fears. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't fear something on this list. Fears are a part of who we are so often. Fear is a, is a natural response. It's part of who we are as part of being human. Having fears doesn't mean that you're weak. Having fear means that you are human. In this past week, I was all too human. On Mondays, 
during the weeks that I'm preaching, on the weeks that I'm preaching, on those Mondays, I spend Monday morning in meetings. I then spend Monday afternoon studying for the sermon. And I ended up at the end of Monday afternoon pretty much sure and pretty confident about starting writing on Tuesday morning. I was feeling good about where I was at. That didn't last long. On Monday night, in the middle of the night, I woke up. I woke up full of fear about preaching this sermon. I woke, and it wasn't about public speaking, but I woke up full of fear and I'm thinking to myself, who are you to preach a sermon? Who are you to get up in front of all those people and speak? You're unqualified, you're unworthy. Who are you? And the fear was overwhelming. Have you had those experiences in the middle of the night where you wake up and the fear is just kind of all encompassing? It's, it's, it's all consuming. And then after I got through the feelings and unworthiness, it then hit me, you're not going to even have anything to say that they want to listen to. The fear was real. And I know you have fears as well. Maybe you're here this morning and, 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 and you're, and you're going to be starting an, a new school next year and you're already afraid to go to that new school because you wonder, is, is anyone at the new school going to like me? Am I going to have any friends at this new school? What is the new school going to be like? Or maybe you're going to a new job or you've just started a new job and you're wondering, am I, am I going to be able to get the job done? Am I going to be able to accomplish what needs to be accomplished? Or maybe God's asked you to start a new assignment. Maybe he wants you to start a neighborhood Bible study and you think to yourself, oh no, not me. I can't do that. That's way outside of my comfort zone, God. But he's asked you and you wonder if you can, if, if you're gonna be able, if anybody will even come if you invite them. Or maybe God's asked you to move to a new place to serve him. And you're thinking about all the details and will they work out? And you're thinking about your kids. Are your kids gonna be able to adjust in everything that is so overwhelming about the new step. Or maybe you're here this morning and you struggle with an addiction. Maybe it's an addiction to alcohol. Maybe it's an addiction to pills. Maybe nobody else even knows about your addiction. But you know. And you're wondering, will I, will I ever get through this? Will this addiction ever go away? And then you begin to think, even if it does go away, will I ever be able to survive without the pills or without the alcohol? The fear is real. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been diagnosed. You've been diagnosed with cancer or heart disease. And the prognosis isn't good. Death seems more like a reality than it's ever been. And maybe you're not even afraid of death, but maybe you're just afraid of the dying part. The pain, how are you gonna handle the pain? The suffering, what's the suffering gonna be like? What is the experience gonna be like? And you think about your spouse, how is my spouse gonna be able to deal with all of this? Or maybe you're the spouse or you're the loved one of somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer and you think, what am I gonna do? What can I do for them? The fear is real. The truth is, all of us, all of us struggle with fear. 
but there's good news. Because this morning, God has a message for you. God has a message for you. You see, God, God sees you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows your struggle and he cares for you. Did you hear me? Did you hear what I said? He sees you. He knows you. He knows your struggle and he cares for you. And he has a word for you this morning. And this is his word for you. He says to you, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you hear these words? Do you see the words on the screen behind me? These are God's personal words to you. There are a lot of people in this room. But this morning, God is saying to you, do not fear. Do not be dismayed, for I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hear the word of the Lord. And now take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41 is found on page 587 in the Bible that's in the rack in front of you, and I would encourage you to grab a Bible this morning. It will help you as we go through this. I want you to check me to make sure I am actually saying what is in this book. So grab the Bible that is in front of you, turn to page 587, and you're gonna see these, this verse on the screen behind me for the rest of the service, because these are God's words to you. Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 41. Look at verse 10. That's the verse that's on the screen. And for now, I want you to see in verse 10 of Isaiah 41, there are two commands. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Dismayed means to look around anxiously. So you could also interpret this, do not fear, do not be anxious. Two commands. There are also five reasons for the commands, five promises from God. I am with you, I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Two commands and five promises. And we're going to take a closer look at the verse in a little bit. We're gonna look closer at its commands and its promises. But first, we're going to look at the context into which this verse is placed. And the context will help us see that the instructions and the promises are even stronger than what we see or understand from just reading the verse. As we come to Isaiah chapter 41, the people of Israel are in need, are in great need of a word of comfort and encouragement. God has just given them really bad news, very troubling, discouraging, tough news. God has told them through the prophet Isaiah that because of their sins, Babylon is going to come. Babylon is this mighty empire and this mighty empire of Babylon is going to come and conquer them and capture them and take them into exile. That's bad news. That's bad news 
for the people of Israel. Everything that they had ever known, everything that they had ever had, everything was going to change. Can you imagine what they must have felt like? Can you imagine what they were going through? Can you imagine their feelings, the discouragement, the overwhelming feeling of helplessness? Can you imagine the fear that must have washed over them when they imagined their future? Babylon was coming to conquer them and take them into exile. But what we have to recognize is in the midst of this, God did not want them to be afraid. Ultimately, he wanted them to come to trust in him and trust in him alone. So over the next few chapters of Isaiah, starting here in Isaiah 41, over the next few chapters of Isaiah, we are going to see that God gives the people of Israel a glimpse of the future. He gives to them a remarkable prophecy. God tells them that in the future, he is going to rescue them from Babylon. He is going to raise up another king. He's going to raise up a different king, a foreign king. And in these next few chapters, he's telling the people of Israel, he's giving them a word of comfort. He's giving them a word of encouragement. And he's telling them, I'm going to raise up another king that's going to bring you back to your own land. This was the king of Persia. He actually names him later King Cyrus. King Cyrus he predicts this conquest, the Persian conquest of Babylon, before King Cyrus is even born in about 150 years before it even happens. This is God's promise to the people of Israel. I'm going to rescue you. Trust in me. This is the remarkable promise that is behind our passage this morning. It's behind Isaiah 41. Now, here in Isaiah 41, God begins by inviting the nations of the world to examine what he is about to do. God invites them to come into a conference with him. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to imagine a courtroom setting. It's a courtroom setting where God is the aggrieved party, he's the prosecutor, and he is the judge. God is calling all of the shots. And he gathers the nations together to present their case. Isaiah 41, verse 1. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. But first, before they speak, God presents his case. And he states his superiority to all the gods of this world. Look what he says beginning in verse 2. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to that which is his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? Yes, who's done all this? Well, God tells us, I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. 
in the presence of the nations, God declares that he controls history. It is he who is going to raise up the king from the east. That's King Cyrus. He's mentioned in future chapters. He raises King Cyrus up to conquer with ease even the mighty empire of Babylon. Look again at how God ends this statement. Look what he says at the end. I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. Do these words sound familiar to you? Do you recognize this kind of, I am he? God here is, is, is expressing his name. The fact that he is the I am. This is Yahweh. He is the self-existent one. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega. Before creation existed, he was. And when everything we know is gone from this earth, he still will be. God is the one who stands outside of time. He stands outside above and over all of time and controls everything. He is the I am. The conquests of King Cyrus produced great turmoil for many people. Times of trial always tell us what we trust in, don't they? Unfortunately, the nations respond by scrambling to manufacture more more idols to put their trust in, to help them cope with what they're going through. Isaiah speaks somewhat sarcastically about this. Look at verse five. The islands have seen it in fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One say it says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. When the nations enter into the courtroom, they first respond with fear and trembling. Right then, they have the opportunity to acknowledge the superiority of the Lord God. But instead, they turn to their false gods and their false idols. They first, look at, they first try to help each other by encouraging each other. They say, look, be strong, hang in there, you can do it. But do you see Isaiah's sarcasm here? Like this is a better choice than trusting God. First they turn to the idol of self, and then they turn to other idols, idols so strong that they have to be nailed down to keep from falling over. In hindsight, it's kind of easy to see where the nations went wrong, isn't it? Like 2020, 2020 vision looking back. We always have 2020 vision looking back. But if you're honest, if we're honest, who do you trust? What do you trust in a time of trial? Where do you turn when you feel helpless? Who comforts you when you are full of fear? Think about what you're going through right now. Think about the fear you face right now. And ask yourself, what am I trusting to get me through? 
What am I trusting to get me through? Are you trusting the one who proclaims, I am he? The one who stands outside of time and controls everything? Or perhaps are you trusting in some man-made solution that when you need it most is just going to topple over? What are you trusting to get you through? Have you ever considered... Have you ever considered that the trial that you're going through right now is intended by God, just like Israel's captivity in Babylon, is intended by God to see what you trust in? What does your fear say about who you trust? What does your fear say about who you trust? Back to the passage. We see that God gives the idols a chance to present their case. Still in the courtroom, look at verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. And then he hits him hard. He gives them both barrels. Look at verse 22. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told you of this from the beginning so we could have known? Or beforehand so we could say he was right. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any, of the, heard any works from you. I was the first one to tell, I was the first to tell Zion. Look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel and no one to give answers when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. This is great. Their images are but wind and confusion. God asked the idols if they can explain the past or predict the future. They're shown to be powerless, impotent. He challenges them here to do something, just do anything. But they can't because not only are they powerless, they're worthless. And he reminds us again that he's the one that's raising up King Cyrus, the one who comes from the east and who's gonna attack from the north. He's the one, God is the one who controls history. Then in verse 28, finally and conclusively, no one gives him an answer. So God pronounces the idols false, worthless, just wind and confusion. The obvious problem with idolatry is that in the long run, it doesn't work. In the long run, the idols cannot do what we want them to do. In the long run, our idols cannot eliminate our fear. 
I hope by now you understand that I am not talking about statutes that are made out of gold or silver. I do not believe you have a gold statue in your living room that you are placing your trust in. But each one of us here are prone to other idols in our life and an idol is something that takes the place that is only reserved for the Lord God. And we have other idols in our lives, don't we? So often it's the idol of self that we think if our self-esteem is just high enough and I work hard enough, then we're gonna, I will get the job done. The idol is self and we end up becoming our own God. But there are other idols as well, aren't there? Ambition, success, money, power, comfort, pleasure, sex, politics, food, alcohol, pills, they are all idols. And we are all subject or prone to place our trust in a worthless, powerless, impotent idol. An idol that is just wind and confusion. but we have some good news. God has some good news for us and he has the solution to our fear. I shared it with you at the beginning. It's still on the screen behind me. Right in the middle of this courtroom scene, God chooses to speak to you and to me. He starts Isaiah 41 by calling the nations to account, by asking them to present their case. But instead he speaks and he tells him that he is mighty. He is the one that is full of majesty and glory. He is the one that controls all things. He stands outside of time and oversees everything that is happening. He calls them forth. And then he says, not only do I call all the shots, but you idols, you don't call any of the shots. There is nothing that you can do because you are powerless. You are worthless. You are impotent. You're just wind and confusion. And in the middle of this grand speech about his majesty and his power, he chooses to intimately speak to you and to me. Look at verse eight, go back to verse eight. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Now, obviously here, God is speaking to Israel, but he is also speaking to you and to me as followers of Jesus. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 11, we are told that we have been grafted in to the natural branches of God's covenant people, Israel. So if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you are a Christian, That means that God has called you, that God has not rejected you, and that verse 10 is said specifically to you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you and help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. No matter what situation you are in right now, no matter what the trial is you are going through, no matter what fear you are experiencing, God is telling you, do not fear. Do not be anxious. I am going to uphold you with my righteous right hand. Remember two commands, do not fear, do not be dismayed. And they are supported by five promises, promises from God. Now here's the thing. Even though he gives us five promises, five reasons to obey his commands, I believe that all of them can best be represented and demonstrated by the fifth promise. I promise to uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now follow me here. We see what he said in verse 10. Now jump down and look at verse 13. And before we look at verse 13, keep in mind that he is upholding you with his righteous right hand. His right hand is his powerful hand. It's meant to be symbolic of the power, his powerful hand, the hand that can act and exercise on your behalf all of his power, all of his might, all of his majesty. Now let's look at verse 13. Verse 13, God says this a bit of a different way. He says, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will take hold of your right hand. Verse 10 and verse 13 hold the key to dealing with all of our fears. In verse 10, God is going to uphold you with his righteous right hand. In verse 13, he's going to take hold of our right hand. Now think about this, track with me, follow along. The God of the universe, the God who controls all things, he stands outside of time, he stands over and above time. He is the one who calls all the shots. He says, I am going to uphold you with my righteous right hand. And in verse 13, he then says, I am going to take hold of your right hand. This God who is transcendent and powerful and controls all things is going to intimately connect with you and take hold of your right hand. Amen. Do you understand what this means? God knows you. He sees you. He knows your struggle and he cares so it's not just that he's going to uphold you from afar with his righteous right hand. He comes down and intimately grabs your right hand and takes hold of it so you and he together. Do you see what happens? Yes. Do you understand the intimacy of this? So what does it mean for us? What does it mean, what do we have to do? Because God's upholding us with his righteous right hand. He takes hold of our right hand. He seems to be doing all the work, which he is. What do we need to do? We need to give him our hand. The problem is, is too many of our right hands are still holding on to the idols that we have in our lives that we think are going to help us and we think they're gonna take away our fears, but they're worthless, they're meaningless, they're powerless, they're just wind and confusion. Yet we hold on. 
We hold on to the idol of self, thinking we can get it done. We hold on to ambition, success, power, money, sex, politics, pleasure, comfort, alcohol, pills. We hold on to these idols and keep thinking that they're going to be able to do something for us. And they can't. God's saying, just let me grab your hand. But if he's going to grab your hand, you have to let go of your idol. You've got to let it go. And when you do, he's right there. And he is going to take your hand. And he is going to uphold you with his righteous right hand. And then look what happens. Look what happens next. You've got to catch this. Verse 15. Look what happens. You've let go of your idol. He's grabbed onto you. He's upholding you with his righteous right hand. He's got your right hand. Look what happens next. Verse 15. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Do you see what's happening here? God, I told you Monday night, I woke up in the middle of the night full of fear. I am telling you, I was afraid. I was afraid because I didn't think I was worthy to say anything. I didn't think I had anything to say that you would want to listen to. And I was afraid. And I realized that I was afraid of failure. I was afraid, uh, I was afraid of rejection. I was afraid of the unknown. And I had to give up the idol that I was carrying because I was carrying the idol of success and ambition and impressing all of you. And you have to let it go. You have to let it go. So then God can grab your hand. And when he grabs your hand, he makes you into a threshing sledge. This is a powerful gardening tool. It harvests the grain. And who, it's just a tool. And God is wielding the tool and he is making you into a threshing sledge, but you gotta let go of the idol and you gotta give him your hand. And how does this work? Remember what he called you at the beginning of verse eight? Remember what he said? He said, you are my servant. He didn't say you are his child. You are his child. He says it in other places. But in verse eight, he says to you, you are my servant. Do you see how this works? You're bottled up in your fear because you're holding on to your idols. And he says, no, I just want to support you with my righteous right hand. Let go of the idol so I can grab your hand so that you can be my servant and you can become a threshing sledge. So if you are dealing with cancer in your cancer, you can be a threshing sledge. If you are the spouse or the family member of somebody who has cancer, you can be a threshing sledge. It's not that you're doing anything. You're just the tool that God is using in the situation. If you are going to a new assignment, you can be a threshing sledge. Do you see what God is doing? And when you become a threshing sledge and he starts to use you, what happens is you start to see his presence and experience his presence and his power in your life. And when you experience his presence and his power in your life, you realize that he is real. And his promises are true. So you can obey the commands. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let go of the idol. Because God wants to take hold of you. Trust in him.
Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.